The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. The 15th Psalm, it's on page 453 in the Chair Bible. If you don't have a copy of the Scripture with you, they're under a chair close by you. So the 15th Psalm invites you to stand as we acknowledge this is the Word of God. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you please be seated? The main idea of this text is that only the righteous will dwell with the Lord God in his presence. We're instructed that this is a Psalm of David. It's Psalm 15. That means it follows Psalm 14. That's on purpose. There's a contrast. Psalm 14, if you will, describes the sinner. Psalm 15 describes the saint. It's a contrast between the two people. Now here's what the Christian finds. The Christian. The Christian defines that Psalm 14 and 15 describe them. The non-Christian only finds Psalm 14 describing them. It is the teaching of Scripture here that we understand that God is describing here a very specific group of people. It's in reference to this question. Who will dwell with the Lord God? Verse one says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now this is an ultimate question. It's not subject to a lackadaisical attitude. What we're asking here is, Who's going to come into the presence of God? Who's going to be with God? So we're addressing the Lord. David is directly, oh Lord, who's going to sojourn in your tent? Meaning, who's going to inhabit as an alien or a dependent the dwelling place of God? Who's going to be invited in? Who who can remain there? Not because they deserve it. They're a sojourner, an alien, But who can come? Who can dwell? That means settle down and remain in the sacred place or the holy hill. So when we're asking the question, who will dwell with the Lord God? Do we mean who can dwell with God now? Who can dwell in the presence of God now in our lives? Or does it mean who will dwell with God in heaven? The answer is yes. It's both now and not yet. So let's start with what is yet to be. Uh, You're living, breathing human beings sitting in front of me listening. So the not yet has not yet happened for you. But it's described in Revelation 21. 
you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to move rather quickly through this section. Revelation 21 is a description of heaven. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But, and this is crucial, here's what I want you to see. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we see the tension here where we're headed in this, this text. So the person who is unrighteous, the person who lives in sin, the person who is unclean, detestable, living false, they're not coming into the presence of God for eternity. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now there's an implication of what happens to those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, those who have trusted in Christ. Now if we turn to 2 Corinthians, we see some evidence of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Then this incredible statement in scripture. For we, that is, believers, Christians, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, now Paul's quoting the Old Testament, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So here's the present reality that Christians must understand about themselves. God dwells within us. Now this has implications on our life. Verse 17, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, that is that we are the dwelling place of God. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. <coughs> Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Bringing holiness to completion. Now let's go to Hebrews 12 and look at one more text before we pursue through 15. Psalm 15. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now that ought to make you set up on the edge of your seat. Without holiness in our actual lives, no one will see the Lord. Now, let's 
go back to Psalm 15 and here's what we're gonna pursue. We're gonna pursue the description or the characteristics of the righteous. Now I'm just gonna quote a text. This is 2 Corinthians 13, five. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves? that Jesus Christ is in you. So this is an appeal to the Christian. Test yourself. Do you realize Christ is in you? Then this addendum on the sentence. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So here's what we're pursuing in this, this text. And we've got to get this straight before we go further. Otherwise, we're, we're preaching or hearing a false gospel. Psalm 15 is not teaching that you have to first accomplish these things to be saved. What Psalm 15 is teaching is if Christ is in you, these things will be true about you. These are evidence of the faith that is in you. Now let's follow the logic. If these things aren't true about you, then you need to go back to the question, is Christ in you? Now, here's what's fascinating about Psalm 15. This is not a description about religious practice. There's no mention of going to temple, to church, tithing, teaching, nothing then what's it about? It's about everyday living. So Psalm 15, get this. Psalm 15 is about Monday through Saturday. It's about what you do in your life when you're away from the religious practice that the Bible teaches in other places. So we're asking the question, are these characteristics of our everyday life? The list is not exhaustive. The Bible teaches more than this. But here in this text, this is what we're looking at. I'm gonna break it into four categories. First, right living. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. So doing what is right first is birthed out of blamelessness. Now this does not mean sinless perfection. It means wholeness or integrity, genuine. It means the real thing, that what you find inside of the true believer in Christ is the real thing. You find Christ in them. And as a result of the fact that Christ is in them, they do what is right, that they actually live out, they walk from this blamelessness to doing what is right in their lives. Now, I've pastored here a very long time. That means I know many of you very well. And as a result, I have grown to know people in the community and regularly meet people. When they identify me as the pastor of Parkwood, they then identify Parkwood with you. That's how the conversation goes. I know so-and-so. And this is the great joy of pastoring this local church. The vast majority, not exclusively, the vast majority of the time, the conversation goes like this. Oh, I know 
so-and-so who goes to your church. She's the real thing. That always opens a gospel opportunity for me. And I press and go, what do you mean by that? What's the real thing mean? Well, you know, like she's a real Christian. Well, how do you know that? Or it goes like this. People have dealings with people from this church through business. Either they work with them or they've done business with them. This is not exclusive. But I'll use the example of a funeral I did. This has been about 15 years ago. One of the prominent businesses here in town, this guy was an executive there. And when I finished the funeral, the several of the other executives there said, we want to take you to lunch. And I thought, oh boy. <laughs> so we go to Milano's and for the next hour and a half, they told me about the integrity of this man and how he lived in the workplace with them. It, it was one of the most significant funeral sermons I've ever been a part of. You hear what I just said? As they were preaching and I was tying it together with the gospel with these men to understand what they were actually seeing. A person who walks blameless and does what is right. Right living also includes right speaking. Those who are in Christ speak truth in their hearts. So let's be clear here. Who's the person talking to? Themself. You see this? They speak truth. He speaks truth in his heart. Now this is opposed to the fool. Look, look, look down at chapter 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We said this last week. The fool's actually saying no God. The fool's, the fool's not even thinking about it. It's not crossing his mind that there's a God or that God has any expectation on his life. But here's what the righteous do. The righteous speak the truth of God's word to their heart. They are reminding themselves of what God has done on their behalf and what God has called them to do and to be. Now what follows in verses three and through five Several of them are negative statements. Does not. So I got to pause here and ask the question, why would you frame something that is true about somebody based off what they do not do? Well, I think that's crucial in a postmodern culture. That we live in an inclusive world that everybody's right and the worst possible sin that you could commit is to judge somebody. Right? Cannot judge. So everybody's right, everybody. But here's the truth about Christians. Christians are distinct people. It's not that we ride the hobby horse of the negative, but there are things that clearly we are not a part of, that we do not do. Now, this first one is stunning. Who does not slander with his tongue. It means they do not spread gossip. Now, I can attest to this in my dealings with local churches and local pastors. One of the things that is ruining local churches, this is not just true in Gastonia, this is true all over the country. 
One of the things that is ruining our credibility in our community is that our churches are known as places of gossip and slander. Brothers and sisters, here's what we need to understand when we open our mouth to speak awful about someone else and to repeat something that we don't know whether or not it's true to somebody else. Here's what we are doing. We are participating in the same things the New Testament describes in lists that include adultery, homosexuality, and other evil things. The Bible considers gossip to be evil. It is something that is not true of the followers of Christ. Next it says, and does no evil to his neighbor. It's not just what he says. It's what they do, that they don't do their neighbor wrong. Now this implies the positive, that they love and care for their neighbor. Now, I've said this before, lost people act like lost people. So if your neighbor is lost, should you be surprised that your neighbor acts lost? So I have a question for you. When your neighbor acts lost, why are you acting lost with him? Just because he's done something to you, there's something to be distinct about us and how we respond to the lost neighbor that we don't do evil to them. We don't respond as if we're just like them. Now, folks, I'm convinced one of the reasons we're ruining our inner credibility in the church is that we're acting like pagans when we get together. It's not true rampantly in this local church. We just don't allow that, okay? We just don't. We practice church discipline here. We find out you're gossiping about somebody, we're gonna confront it. But one of the things that's ruining our credibility in our neighborhoods is we don't act distinctly like Christians. We're not going the extra mile as Jesus taught us to do. So here's a question I wanna ask. I just want you to ponder this. Do your neighbors so trust you that if they went on vacation, they'd leave you the key to their house? That's the kind of relationship you ought to have. They ought to know that if something went wrong in their house or there was some kind of need that they could trust you, that you would do the right thing for them and by them. And that, my friend, is built by credibility of showing your neighbor love. Now, he brings the relationship even tighter and nor takes up reproach against his friend. That means simply and straightforward that you are a loyal friend. I'm quite shocked. I hear this quite often. I really don't have any friends. What? Why is that? Is that something about people or is that something about you? Why is it that we wouldn't have friends? Friendship ought to be something that marks the believer. And true friendship is a person who does not betray another. Jesus described it this way. Here's the kind of love Christians are to have for each other. You lay down your life for your friend. That's what Jesus did. We, We are a distinct 
people. We don't bring harm to others. And listen, listen, all of us have been betrayed. All of us have. Can I go another step? All of us have betrayed others. But what ought to be distinct about us is that we are not a people who take up a reproach against those we're closest to. He presses deeper, what I'm calling right honor. And boy, you gotta be really careful with verse four. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Now, the beginning of verse four is not permission for you to treat lost people harshly. It is not what it means. It's a contrast that in your eyes, you're not exalting lostness, that you're not looking at a vile person and going, oh boy, there's something. What you're doing in your eyes is you honor those who fear God. A genuine worshiper rejects the sinner in the sense of rejecting his defiling influence because here's what we understand. Bad company corrupts good character. Now this is, this is what we ought to pray for our friends. You know, I was a youth pastor for a long time. This is one of my favorite statements that parents would say, you know, my kid's problem is their friends, to which I would say, you know, they're their friend. It'd take people a while to work that riddle out. We pick our friends on purpose. We associate with people on purpose. We associate with who we honor. You getting me? Now, I don't mean we never have anything to do with lost people. How are lost people ever going to come to know Christ if we don't have some relationship with them? But our deepest relationships, what the Bible's teaching is, our deepest relationships are not with people who don't know Christ. Our deepest relationships are with those who do. Those are the ones whom we honor, the ones who fear the Lord. Now, I have to read this quote because it relates. It was just in my writing. It's a little bit tangential for my sermon, but this was written 250 years ago. And boy, does this apply in the 21st century. Listen. When indeed we find wicked men in power, we must honor them in their office, submit to them cheerfully to all their lawful requirements and pray for them. But we cannot love or revere these persons who are sinful and vile. That was free. <laughs> who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, what does that mean? That sounds like a riddle. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. It means this that this person maintains the integrity of their word. They do what they promise to do. They resist the urge to bend or to buckle when things get hard. They keep their word, hold fast to their commitment, no matter the cost. So even when it hurts, even if it's caused them pain, they keep their word when, it can, when they can or it does result in personal loss or pain. So even if it turns bad for them, they do what they said that they were going to do. Last, right dealings. Who does not put out his money at interest. Don't answer this out loud, but I just wonder if you know when I ask the question. 
Do you know who's paying the highest interest rates in Gaston County? The answer is the poorest of the poor are. Title loan business is an evil practice. Yes, I said it. Taking advantage of people to gain financially is wrong. And God's saying that we as his people are not a part of that. We don't do that. It's deeper saying this. We don't charge each other interest. Not what we do. Now, let me illustrate this. It's going to get real quiet in here. Those of you who've been around church for a while, sorry. I've been around, I was a brand new Christian, a couple years. All I'm doing is reading my Bible. I'm just learning from my Bible, right? Church was growing. It had to build a building, and they decided to do a bond program. Now, here's how bonds work, all right? The church borrows money from its members and people in the community and then pays the money back with interest. Now, when this got explained to me in a business meeting, I thought my head was going to explode. Now, I'm 21 years old. I'm, I know I'm young, dumb, and stupid, but I know what the Bible says. I knew what Psalm 15 said. So I started asking questions. You mean you're gonna, we're, we're gonna violate the Bible to build the church? We're gonna charge the church interest? I basically got this. You're naive and you don't know how things work. Friends, listen to me. Maybe you did that in your past and you never thought about it. Just repent and don't do it again. Don't charge God's people interest. That's what the Bible is teaching. Next. And does not bribe against the innocent. Okay, so let me just, I've nailed a couple things. Let me just nail one more. The lottery is bribery against the innocent. It is a means of taking advantage of the poor. And I hope to the Lord that you do not participate in it. It is a means of taking money from people who cannot afford to lose that money. Evil societies have done things like this forever. And here's what the Bible's teaching. We as Christians are not a part of it. We don't join in it. All right, let's review where we started. Examine yourself to see if you be of the faith. Well, here's what happened to me as I worked through Psalm 15 this week. Guilty. Sadly, the sin of my own life became clear. A second thing happened to me as I worked my way through Psalm 15. I saw the evidence of my salvation. I saw as I worked through this text that the person I once was, I no longer am. That there are things that God has done in my life that can only be explained as God. Now, I dare say, as we work through this text, the same thing has happened for Christians. You felt the guilt and the conviction of sin, and at the same time, you've rejoiced to say, yes, that's true of me. For others of you, the weight of this text is crushing you. 
Because basically, the only thing this has done is to confirm the fact that you give little to no evidence of being a Christian. So what do you do? You first ask this question. Am I trusting in Christ alone for my salvation? I told you from the beginning, I am in no way teaching or preaching that you can earn your salvation. The Bible is not teaching that principle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Bible says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Everybody look up here and let's get some relief for a minute. There's only one person who's kept Psalm 15. His name is Jesus Christ. Psalm 24 is very similar and we will pursue that in more depth when we work through the 24th Psalm. But thanks be unto Christ that he kept the law perfectly on our behalf. And because he was sinless, God placed on him our sin. As he hung on the cross, he became sin for us and took the punishment for our sin. Why? So that in him, that, that when we trust in Christ and, and believe on him alone for our salvation, we are in him and we become Something fundamentally transformational where the old is gone, the new has come. We, we become the righteousness of God. Now look in chapter seven, verse one. Since we have these promises that the one who knew no sin became sin and that, that we are in him and have become the righteousness of God, we're a new creation. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves, excuse me, from every defilement of body and spirit. Look at this bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So let me simply say it this way. Christ fulfilled Psalm 15 so that we might live Psalm 15. Christ fulfilled Psalm 15 so that we might live Psalm 15. Charles Wesley written several of the hymns in your hymn book, was a preacher several hundred years ago. And he would regularly take a carriage ride with a very poor man who was a Christian. And he was a joyful Christian. And one particular morning as Wesley got into his carriage, he said to him, my friend, you thank God when you have nothing to wear when you have nothing to eat and you have no bed to lie on. I just wanna ask you, what else do you thank him for? Without hesitation, the man said these words to Charles Wesley. I thank him that he has given me my life and being, a heart to love him and a desire to serve him. You see, this man understood grace. That the, the, the desire and the heart to love God 
is from God. It is only those who have been made a new creation who long after him. Now, I'm going to press harder. This is very common. Are you a Christian? The vast majority of people in this community are going to answer the question. What do you mean by that? It's going to go something like this. Well, you know, when I was 12 or 13, I was at this youth service and I went forward and, and confessed and was baptized. And okay, are you still a part of a church? No. Well, do you pursue the things of God? Not really. Do those things matter to you? Not really. So are you confident that, that, that you're going to be in the presence of God forever? Oh, absolutely. I ask him into my heart. Can, can I just ask you a question based off of what you heard today and those of you who regularly heard me preach? Is that the theology of the Bible? It's not. Now, I'm not saying that that person's got to earn something. What I'm saying to that person is, if they're describing to me that they're not walking with Jesus and they're okay with that, that's not evidence of salvation at all. Those who truly are saved, if they are living in sin, are miserable and under such strong conviction that that's all that's on their mind, they don't think it's okay. But the person who's convinced that they punched a ticket and now they're okay and they can do whatever they want to do, do not understand what God is saying here. So I ask this question. Does my life reflect what my lips declare? Plummer wrote, no man can be a true member of the church of God who is a stranger to moral righteousness. I'll read it again. No man can be a true member of the church of God who is a stranger to moral righteousness. For timing's sake, I'm not gonna turn to James. I'll let you look there. But James 2, 18 to 26 is the Psalm 15 of the New Testament. Here's what it says. Faith without works is dead. You can claim to believe something. If there's not evidence of that which you believe, that's not true faith. That there will be evident righteousness in the life of the believer. Now, am I saying, let's be careful so somebody can come out and ask me. Am I saying this person lives an absolute spotless, perfect life in everything they do? Is that what I'm saying? No. Am I saying this person desires to live for Christ and to honor God? Yes. Yes. They are pursuing the things of God. Now we're back to Psalm 15 and we wrap it up with the final phrase. He who does these things. So the person who is pursuing after these things shall never be moved. So the question is, from where? Where is it that they're never going to be moved from? The answer is in verse 1. They're never going to be moved from the presence of God. 
that in Christ we are in the presence of God, that we live daily in the presence of God. And one day at the coming of Christ or at our death, we are going through Christ to be brought into the full presence of God forever and ever. In the meantime, Psalm 1. This is how the psalm started. The person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers but delights in the law of the Lord and meditates day and night. Here's what's true of this person. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in season, and his leaf does not wither. In other words, there's evidence through this person's life. All that he does prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. This is the theme of Psalms, my friends. Who's gonna dwell with God? Who's gonna dwell with God? Those who are righteous. Where does righteousness come from? from Christ alone. And for those who have trusted in Christ alone, that righteousness will be evident in their life. Let's pray. Lord, I, I realize, I realize as I stand before people and those listening over the internet, that we are prone to extremes, that we are prone to defining the faith on our own, we are susceptible to the false and wrong things we've heard in the past. I pray that you would give us clarity to your word today, that salvation is through Christ alone and that when we trust in Christ, it transforms our lives such that we give evidence that we are truly yours. So I plead for those who can find no evidence, whose lives are marked by sin, whose lives are marked by their own way. I pray that they would repent of their sin and turn to Christ today. And for those, God, who have been saved by your grace, we confess that any good thing in us, any good thing is from you. So now we may, we together, as the body of Christ, come and give thanks to you as you call others to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org.